you can turn to the Gospel of Luke, to Luke chapter 8, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 22 to 25. We're continuing that series we've been in for a while now in Luke's Gospel, and the title of the series is called Kingdom Come. And so, just exploring how Luke presents to us the inauguration of the Kingdom of God in the arrival of Jesus as the Messiah. And so, if you remember, at the very beginning of Luke's Gospel, he talks to Theophilus, that this individual he's writing the Gospel of Luke 2 and the book of Acts 2 to give him this orderly account, this historically accurate retelling that he's gotten from the witnesses who were there about the life and ministry and work and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we are continuing that in Luke 8, specifically verses 22 to 25. So if you want to look with me there, if you don't have a Bible with you, it should be on the screen as well. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. One day... He, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. The word of the Lord, may he write its truth upon our hearts. Well, Father, it is your word that we have read, and it's your word that we need to hear. We do want you to impress truth upon our hearts, Lord. We want to celebrate the good news of your gospel. We want to encounter Jesus. And we know that's your desire as well. And so we ask for the Spirit now to do those things in our midst. And I pray that in the preaching of your word, you would protect us from error. Lord, you would promote your truth and that you would glorify your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we have just three points in the message. We're going to look at a sudden storm. We're going to look at a crisis of faith. And then finally, we're going to look at a revelation. A sudden storm, a crisis of faith, and a revelation. The story starts out with this storm coming upon the Sea of Galilee. It actually reminds me of one of my wife Hannah's favorite movies. I found this out when we were dating. She loves the movie White Squall. It's this movie by Ridley Scott that came out in the mid-90s. And White Squall is this story of, of a pretty good-sized sailboat it's like a two-mast sailboat and it's it's a school boat and by that it means the captain and his wife have this school set up where they take boys basically out to sea and so part of the time when they're out at sea they're doing typical school things They're, they're reading literature and they're doing arithmetic and all that sort of stuff but the rest of the time these boys are the crew on the ship and they're learning to sail the ship at sea out on the high seas and so there's a part of it that kind of speaks to you as a young boy you're just like This is adventure. That's the way I want to go to school, like on a ship on the high seas. So that's that's the story of White Squall. Except the movie is actually based on a true story, and it gets its name, White Squall, from what happens while these students, these young men, are on the ship. A massive storm comes in. It's telling the story of the ship, the Albatross, which encountered one of those squalls in 1961. And the ship actually sank and so in the movie one day as they're sailing seemingly out of nowhere this this white squall sets upon them and the thing that makes a white squall unique is it's not like a normal storm where you have like 
the foreboding storm clouds that come through the air and the lightning is crashing. A white squall comes, there's no clouds, and it just comes suddenly, and that's what makes it so dangerous. The crew can't anticipate it. They can't expect it, and it comes, and it hits them, and, and the ship goes down. That movie takes place in the ocean. But actually, in the ocean, white squalls are fairly uncommon. But on large lakes, particularly like our Great Lakes, they happen more frequently. There, there's a history and recordings of squalls like that happening more commonly than they do on the high seas. Part of it being quick, high winds setting in can have more of an effect on a body of water that's not quite as large as the Atlantic Ocean, right? Well, that's what a squall does. It's this sudden, brutally violent windstorm that comes without expectation and just devastates a ship. Luke tells just that kind of story in our text this morning. That's what happened. That's the event that happened to Jesus and the disciples. In fact, if we even look geographically at the Sea of Galilee, it makes sense that there's a way that the Sea of Galilee is arranged on the earth and there's hills on one of the shores that sort of funnel the wind. And so you can actually see, if you examine the land around it, how it can be prone to those kind of sudden storms that could come about. So it's not an unheard of thing. But this is, is a personal account. For the first time in a while, Jesus is in the company of just his disciples, right? We've been going through, and Luke's been telling us the things that have been happening to Jesus and the disciples. Uh, there have been just large crowds and multitudes just pressing in, right? Houses filled to bursting to the point where his family can't even get to him. Everyone's coming to hear him teach, to, he to hear him and see him heal and perform miracles. But now we enter into a period where, where Jesus begins doing some things specifically with the disciples to teach them what does it look like to follow him. So what's happening this morning isn't so much an evangelistic event, like a lot, a lot of what happens with those crowds. Huge crowds come and Jesus proclaims the kingdom to them, tells them parables and calls them to seek him. This is more Jesus showing the disciples in, in an intimate encounter what it looks like in a broken world, in a fallen world, in a place crying out for redemption, what it looks like to follow Jesus as the Messiah. He's laying out, what does it look like to live your life in devotion to Christ? So to that end, Jesus tells the disciples, hey, let, let's get away from the crowd, let's jump in a boat, let's go to the other side of the lake. And so the disciples, they obey, they, they commandeer a boat, we don't know how they get it, but they get a boat, they find a boat, it's not unexpected some of the disciples have fished this very lake before they've made their living on it they find a lake and then they set out and it tells us luke says jesus drifts off to sleep and so jesus is cozy in a corner of the boat and he's catching some z's which is even just helpful to realize even jesus gets tired even jesus needs rest there's something just fundamentally human about recognizing the need for sleep jesus recognizes it here but jesus is asleep in the boat and that's when the storm sets in. So this, this storm comes, and it's ugly, and it's fast, and they're just getting blasted by waves and water. And so they start freaking out, and they rush over to Jesus, and essentially they scream to him, we're all going to die! That's more or less the rough translation of the Greek. We're all going to die! And they're just losing their heads. You have to remember, though, as they're losing their heads, these guys aren't like city slickers. These guys aren't guys who've never been in a boat. Now, if you've ever been in a boat with somebody who doesn't know how to drive a boat, it can be a hairy experience, especially when you're coming into the dock. 
like people who don't know how to navigate boats, who think they can, and they try and approach the dock, and now you're all fearing for your life as they screech to a halt and usually plow into it. That, that's not the disciples, though. Some of these guys are professional fishermen. They, they left that profession to come and follow Jesus. So you have, you have skilled navigators in this boat. You have, you have men who've made their living on the water. They're not going to be easily frightened by just a little bit of white caps. So when Luke tells us that they are afraid that they're going to die, this is a really serious situation. They're not just panicking. They're not just overreaching. They're not overreacting. They're scared because in their expert opinion, this ship is going down. It's about to sink. And the Sea of Galilee is large enough that if it sinks, they won't make it to shore. Part of what's happening here, though, I think, is they're also shocked. They're shocked by the suddenness of the storm. Luke makes it seem like it just comes out of nowhere. But they're also shocked that this is happening while they're with Jesus. This is the last thing they expect when they, when they set sail with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. If you're ever expecting just a, a pleasant, peaceful boat ride, it's when you get in the boat with Jesus, right? Surely we're going to have just perfect sailing weather. It's going to be, we'd always talk when we go wakeboarding as kids, it's glass. You expect glass on the water. That's what they would expect. And it makes sense given what they've experienced. They've been walking around the country with, with crowds pressing in for an audience. Jesus is healing people. He's casting out demons. He's raising people from the dead. He's wowing everyone with his wisdom. The religious elite are coming to kind of try and knock him off his game. And time and time again, he, he's showing them up. He's dueling with them, and then he's cleaning house. It's a really cool thing to be in Jesus' posse. These are like the definition of like the Galilean cool kids crowd. Like that, that's what it is to walk around with Jesus. Good stuff happens when you're around Jesus. Amazing stuff happens when you're around Jesus. And so in their mind, it's like, man, you, you hang out with Jesus, and it's great. You're along for a sweet ride. Jesus is aware of these perceptions as well. He knows how they think. In fact, throughout his ministry, Jesus very explicitly works to combat this idea of the people surrounding him, doesn't he? This idea that starts to grow up from his followers, just generally broadly, even the 72 and especially within the disciples, that if you put your faith in Jesus... You're going to have a trouble-free ride, man. It's going to be smooth sailing. In actuality, what happens on that voyage is a bit of an analogy for life. Storms are inevitable, even with Jesus in your boat. We just had Dana and, and Tyler's wedding last night. It was a great time celebrating got to go through the ceremony, but in preparation for that, we had premarital counseling with them. And I kind of always joke with folks I take through premarital counseling. Part of premarital counseling is my job is, is to burst your bubble. <laughs> like your, your marriage isn't going to be maybe like your engagement has been. Cause a lot of people have like this, just, Oh, it's life is daisies and flowers. And I love you so much. And we're going to be married. And it's gonna be happy every day and breakfast in bed. <laughs> okay. Now let's walk through what's going to happen. Maybe the second day of your honeymoon, <laughs> maybe two weeks in or two months in or two years in, but there's going to be trials that come into your marriage. 
I have to be the bearer of bad news and then equip them so they can graciously walk through with each other when storms come and when difficulties come and assure them this doesn't mean that you have the worst marriage ever. It means you have a normal marriage because two sinners have fallen in love. You have to prepare people who are being married that trials are a part of life. Yeah, Dana and Tyler are in Florida and they're going to go to Disney World, but the rest of their marriage isn't going to be wedding gowns and Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and you have to break that to them. That's the reality of life. Storms come. Difficulties come. Walking with Jesus isn't a free pass guaranteeing a trial-free life. There are preachers, there are people out there, there are best-selling books that would want you to believe that. There's a crisis of faith in this story, but the storm doesn't come because of the crisis of faith, right? So don't buy into this idea that when a trial comes, it's because your faith was lacking. No, trials come because you live in a broken world. You live in a world groaning for redemption, waiting for Jesus to come again to finally, perfectly, and fully restore all things. Following Jesus doesn't mean there's never going to be tribulations. In fact, in John's gospel, Jesus predicts to his disciples, there's persecution coming, and it's going to scatter you. It's going to come, and it's going to hit you in the mouth, and it's going to scatter you. And this little fledgling church, when Jesus departs, is going to get punched by the power structures that be. And Jesus prophetically tells them, storms are coming, and when those storms come, they're going to be tempted to feel alone and to feel abandoned. But then he assures them, and he assures us, with the words of John 16, I've said these things to you. I've predicted the troubles that are going to come that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That, that's really helpful. That's a precious promise for life in a fallen world. There are going to be hardships. There will be the unexpected diagnosis of cancer. The unexpected diagnosis that cancers come back when you thought it was gone. The job loss, a betrayal of someone close to you. Maybe even overt persecution for your faith. James says various trials. He, he does it intentionally. You can't just pigeonhole this is the only trials. There will be various trials of all sorts. This broken world inhabited by broken sinful people will throw them your way. In trusting Jesus, it doesn't mean that you will never be victim to storms. But it does mean that in Jesus, in the midst of the storms, you can find peace. Peace that's deeper and more secure even than life's greatest difficulties. For the disciples, though, Jesus is teaching them that lesson through experience. We get it through God's Word. They're getting it firsthand through the school of hard knocks. And as the boat threatens to capsize, they have a crisis of faith. The second thing we see this morning. This storm proves to be a massive test of their faith. And we shouldn't make light of the test. They are literally fearing for their lives. It's so easy to read so many things in the Bible and think, man, why wasn't Saul courageous enough to go fight Goliath? 
easy for us to say when you're not facing the nine-footer, right, with the 45-pound sword. Easy for us to sit here in, in our comfortable seats in our nice air-conditioned sanctuary and think, Jesus was in the boat. Why on earth were they scared? They were scared because they thought they were going to die. All the conditions really pointed to certain death. So don't make light of it. I can remember as a kid, we went on vacation one time to Yankton, South Dakota. And there was like this path you could go through to the woods. And it was like this long path. And I had gone the path and I decided in my young, I was probably like nine or ten years old, mind that it was a good idea. I was an adventurer. I didn't need to stay on the path. So I went off the path because I thought I saw a shortcut. And I went off the path, and the next thing I knew, I was kind of in, like, this marshy area, and then, like, these reeds. And from the hill that I had gone off the path, the reeds didn't look that big, but once I was in the reeds, I realized these are, like, eight feet tall. But in my head, it was just a little ways through the reeds, and so I started pushing through the reeds. And about five minutes in, I was completely lost. I had no sense of direction. And I just remember being gripped by panic. In my little nine-year-old mind, I'm going to die in the reeds. I'm going to be stuck here. Wolves are going to eat my corpse. And my parents won't know what happened to me. And I'm like hyperventilating. I'm just crying like crazy. I was losing it. And so I finally stumble out of the reeds. And I'd gone on this little excursion with my two buddies who had stayed on the path because they weren't as dumb as me. And so they're like waiting by their bikes to go bike back to where our campers are. And they see me and I'm just like dirty with like the tear streaks like... Get out of my way! And I grabbed my bike and I rode as fast as I can ever remember riding back to our little camper, our little pop-up that we had borrowed. And just coming in, my mom's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I was going to die and you weren't there to save me! And she's like, what on earth? But I was, I was scared. Like, I remember I was freaked out in my mind. It was the end. I can still remember my, my pounding heart and just the terror and the near loss of rationality. Now, I look back on it, and my fear that day seems really silly and really juvenile. But in the moment, it, w it was paralyzing. What fear says is that even though things might be okay now, w when you struggle with fear, it says, even though things are okay now, I know they're going to get bad in the future. But when you struggle with fear, that, that's the way you think about reality. Fear and anxiety are constantly predicting the future, and it's a bleak, terrible future, and so it just seizes your heart with the absolute certainty of that prediction. You will never get out of these reeds alive. You thought it was just 100 yards. It's, it's infinite. You are going to lose your job at the end of this pay period, and then you will lose your home, and you will lose your family. You'll be living on the street. Fear and anxiety... They become predictors of an absolutely certain bleak future. And the disciples are in that boat and the storm is raging and they're freaking out. We're going to die! And that's the way some of us go through life. I don't make light of that. Some people suffer from panic attacks. Some people just suffer from, you want to ask, what's your besetting sin? Anxiety. I can't sleep at night because anxiety sits on my chest. I get up at 2 a.m. and I can't breathe 
And I sit there and I stare at the clock. Not even because of really scary things, but even just mundane, everyday life that, that stirs up incredible levels of irrational fear. And even though you know the fear isn't rational, there's still no denying the way it grips your heart. A humorous way to look at it, I think of the old Charlie Brown quote. You know, Charlie Brown, just like the eternal pessimist, right? I have a new philosophy, Charlie Brown says. I only dread one day at a time. I will still dread every day, but my new philosophy is I'm just going to dread one day at a time. That seems more manageable than, than dreading all of eternity. When Charlie says it, we find it humorous, but when we find ourselves in capsizing boats, the crisis of faith that our fear represents is brutally undeniable. C.S. Lewis in his book, A Grief Observed, is exactly right when he tells us, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or, false or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. Only a real risk tests the reality of a belief. The disciples are finding that out, aren't they? For the disciples, their panic reveals that for all the time they've spent with Jesus, they still don't grasp the refuge and the safety they have in His presence. And so they rush to His side. They come sprinting to His side. They sense, you get this sense, they are coming, Jesus, help us. But the idea is, Jesus, help us. You've you got to pray. You've you got to do something. Call upon God to deliver us. You've been doing these amazing things. God's been working to do. Do it again. Make God work through you. Say a prayer. Figure out what you have to do, but, but make it stop. And Jesus doesn't hesitate. He immediately comes to their aid. Now, Jesus doesn't care about the storm. He's asleep in the boat. Like, they're taking on water. Somehow he's wet, and he's still not waking up. The boat's going down, but he's still sleeping as peacefully as can be. He's sound and secure, sleeping like a baby, they would say. But as soon as the disciples rush to him in fear, he's alert and he comes to their side. And the reality is that's true in all of life. Jesus doesn't struggle for faith in the way that we do. He doesn't. He's not having a crisis of faith in that boat with the disciples. He's not gripped with fear. He is comfortably sleeping. I used to be like, I used to have this gift. My mother-in-law still jokes about it. I still have it in some respects. But I can kind of fall asleep at the drop of a hat. So if we'll have like a family get together and there'll be chaos going on. It's like you've had the big lunch that mother-in-law has made. I can just go find a, a chair in the middle of the room and I can fall asleep. I'm just out cold. I used to have that ability in a car. So we'd be on a trip. I would drive and then Hannah would drive. and It was great. I would just lay down and go to sleep. Some people can't sleep in cars, but I've always been able to just go out like a light. That stopped when we moved to Kansas. Because in Missouri, for some reason in their infinite wisdom, they put those little sound strips right on the line. Like there's no, there's no grace in the state of Missouri. It's like you get on the yellow line, like, you know how that goes? And I found this, it's genetic because Brooke has the same problem. In the Deneen family, there's an inability to actually stay fully within your lane. There's something about like your outside tire being on the strip that feels more comfortable than being in the lane. And in every other state, that doesn't matter because the other states are gracious, but not Missouri. And so I was in my typical mode of 
Hannah drives. I sleep, so a lot of times we'll come home from Minnesota, and I'll drive kind of through Des Moines, and she'll we'll switch, kids go to the bathroom, she'll start driving, and I'll be sleeping. We'll get through Iowa, and all of a sudden, <laughs> and it's just terrible. Like, you're asleep, and I'll, what, are you okay? You know, especially when it's late, and it's 1 a.m. in the morning, and you're thinking, we're going in the ditch. And, and Hannah's not panicked. She's just, it's not even like the little, and you're back on, it's like, you know, you're thinking you're going to die. And you got your kids in the car, you're thinking everyone's going to die. I used to be able to sleep soundly. I, I can't anymore. I, I have no faith we're going to survive. That's not Jesus. Like this storm is like the sound strips of all sound strips. The ship is going down. Jesus is asleep. Peter's got it. Jesus is an all-time great boat-is-sinking sleeper. And that's true because he rests perfectly secure in the Father's loving providence. He doesn't fear like we do. He cares about the fact that we do. And that's a helpful distinction. He doesn't grip by fear and anxiety like we are because he doesn't give in to the temptation. And even though he doesn't fear like we do, he still cares that we do. He immediately responds. There's this compassionate, empathetic response. And just like in the boat, in the rest of life, when you cry out to Jesus in distress, he draws near. He draws near as the literal embodiment of God, as your refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Luther makes a great observation in this regard. He comments on Psalm 118, verse 5. I'll read the psalm first. The psalm says this, Out of my distress, I called upon Yahweh the Lord, and Yahweh the Lord answered me and set me free. Out of my distress, I called upon the Lord, and He answered me. Now listen to Luther's insight. Note the great art and wisdom of faith. It does not run to and fro in the face of trouble. It does not cry on everybody's shoulder, nor does it curse and scold its enemies. It does not murmur against God by asking, why does God do this to me? Faith does not despair of the God who sends trouble. Faith does not consider Him angry or an enemy, as the flesh, the world, and the devil strongly suggest. Faith rises above all this and sees God's fatherly heart behind His unfriendly exterior. It is his desire and will that you lay your troubles before him. He does not want you to multiply your troubles by burdening and torturing yourself. He wants you to be too weak to bear and overcome such troubles because he wants you to grow strong in him. And by his strength, he is glorified in you. That's really helpful pastoral perspective from Brother Martin. Jesus commands them to cross the lake. And he knows when he goes to sleep the trouble that's coming. When he's asking that, he's asking them to trust his plan, to trust his wisdom. And initially it looks like, hey, sure, grab a boat, let's go. But notice the grace of God even in the midst of their crisis of faith. Even as their faith is, is falling apart. They're doing exactly what Luther says faith doesn't do, right? Right? They are running to and fro in the face of trouble. They are panicking and freaking out. They are despairing that trouble has come. Even in the face of their unbelief, Jesus 
is a picture of mercy. And Jesus is always a picture of mercy when we call on him for help. God fundamentally created us as human beings, as as finite people who need to eat and need to rest and need to sleep and, and need to have wounds bound up and given time to heal. He created us, everything about us, with a fundamental instinct and need to trust him, to rest in him, to turn to him in times of trouble. You look around scripture and scripture is just replete with references to fear and anxiety in God's response, isn't it? There's all sorts of references in Scripture to those topics. Those topics are so common for the very simple reason Scripture assumes, God assumes, there will be times when we are beset by anxiety and fear. He knows we will be because it's a fallen world, and He created us as needy, dependent creatures. And the crucial thing in those times is where you go with that fear. whom do you turn when you're gripped by debilitating anxiety? Jesus wants you to turn to your merciful Father. To trust in Him. One of the great ministries Jesus does as our High Priest is His ministry of intercession. He prays for us before the Father. And in his ministry of intercession, one of the things that he does is he prays for the fortifying of your faith in times of trouble and trial. Jesus, when storms come, you can be assured, is before the Father praying for you and praying for your faith in the midst of those trials. That's an incredible image. That's a true image. It's his great joy to plead for mercy at the throne of grace. And it's the father's joy to respond to the son's intercession and to send the spirit in response to those prayers. I love the confidence Paul has in this. Like Paul prays and he he just expects God is going to move. He has given us his son. How will he not also give us all things? When I pray incredible things from God, I expect that our our gracious Heavenly Father will respond in ways that exceed everything we can imagine. In Ephesians 3, he says, he bows his knee before the Father, praying this for the saints in Ephesus. Praying it for the saints here at Providence. He bows his knee that according to the riches of God's glory, the eternal immensity of God's glory, that according to that glory, God may grant you, Ephesus, you, Providence, to be strengthened with power, through His Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I bow before the Father because I know Jesus pleads this same case, that according to the immensity of His glory, He would have you strengthened in your inner being, that that quaking inner being in the midst of your anxiety would be strengthened by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit that you would believe into Jesus Christ, that he would dwell more securely in your heart through faith. The idea isn't that Jesus isn't in your hearts until that prayer. He's in your hearts. You're now sensing how much he is dwelling in your heart because your faith is more alive and you see it more clearly. That's the intercession and the work that Jesus mercifully does for us in times of trial and trouble and and temptations for fear and anxiety. 
But the calming of the storm isn't primarily about faith or the faith the disciples do and don't have. It's a significant part of the story. But Luke relays this event to us not to tell us primarily about faith. He's telling us this for the purpose of revelation. Now, all of Luke's gospel is revelation, right? All of Luke's gospel is, is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word to us. Don't mistake me there. But part of what Luke is saying is, in this story, Jesus and God through Jesus reveals something to the disciples. It's an incredible moment. The disciples are in this panic. They're in this rush to Jesus. And the sense in the text is they're expecting he's going to pray. He's going to call down divine deliverance for them. They know Jesus is the solution to the problem. And yet they are totally, utterly shocked by the solution he provides. Now, in the ancient world, angry seas is a sign of demonic power. Demonic activity happens when the seas start to roar. That's what you expect. When seas raged, it's a visible sign. It's a visible, tangible thing that you can see that the entire world is is raging in rebellion against God's rule. And, And so the solution for many of ancient Israel's neighbors, what would they do? They would imagine gods that ruled over the seas. And so they would pray to those gods and they would sacrifice to those gods because those gods were raging over the water. So you had to appease those gods. The Israelites viewed it differently. They still saw demonic activity in stormy waters, but their solution wasn't to worship the waves. They didn't pray to Poseidon like the Greeks or or to Neptune like the Romans. They knew from the scriptures that ultimately it it was Yahweh. It was their covenant God who ruled the cosmos. And it was it was Yahweh who could calm the seas. And so throughout the Old Testament, there's all sorts of references to the Lord, to Yahweh's power over the seas and over the storms. It's sort of an ancient apologetics argument. Their neighbors are are praying to false gods, and the seas are still stormy. And the Israelites are praying to the true and living God, and the seas are calming down. Our God reigns, your God's fake. When Yahweh moves, the seas are stilled. Two, Two examples, there's so many. Psalm 89, verse 8. Yahweh, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are. None of these false gods. Who is mighty as you are, O Yahweh, Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 107, 28. Then they, the people, cried to Yahweh, the Lord, in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He, Yahweh the Lord, made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And so the disciples rush to Jesus. And they're imploring Him. They're begging Him for help. Use your amazing leverage with God, Jesus. Do something to save us. Do something to bring Yahweh's great power to bear On these crazy seas, we know you can do it. We know you've got the direct line, Jesus. Your healings, your miracles, casting out demons. We know. So please do it now. 
except Jesus doesn't pray to Yahweh. He doesn't take up the position of Psalm 107. He doesn't cry out to the Lord in the time of trouble. No, no. When Jesus wakes up, he doesn't pray for help. Jesus himself stands up, speaks, and Jesus himself rebukes the wind and rebukes the raging waves. And they cease. And they're still. And there's calm. And the disciples fear transitions. They go from fearing for their lives in the midst of a raging sea to fearing for their lives in the presence of God Himself. Verse 25 says, And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that He commands even winds and water? And they obey Him. They're not asking Who then is this? Because they don't know. They're quaking and marveling because they do know. They're saying the question and fearful because they know the answer. Who then is this? It's Yahweh. Yahweh is in the boat with them. It's Yahweh's voice that just calmed the storm. It's it's Yahweh's voice that just rebuked the waves. It's Yahweh's face that has become incarnate in the person of Jesus who was just asleep and now just woke up and now just controlled nature in front of their very eyes. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus, as Paul loves to say, is Lord. And so they are gripped by a new fear, a better fear, A holy fear. A fear that has come face to face with eternal righteousness and eternal justice and infinite holiness. They realize they have come face to face with the one Moses had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock to be around or else he would die. Jesus demonstrates the kingdom and the kingdom's arrival in that boat. And they've been learning about the kingdom. They learned about the seed and the sower, right? Oh, the kingdom's coming. Make sure your heart's right. Okay. They're learning something about the kingdom right now in that boat, aren't they? This kingdom is bigger than they imagined. Through his words, Jesus shows the power of his kingdom, his authority over the prince of darkness and the raging of the waves. Jesus not only declares the kingdom in his words, he demonstrates the kingdom. And in that boat, the disciples suddenly realize with shocking clarity just what the arrival of the kingdom entails. God hasn't sent an ambassador. He's not sent an eloquent royal emissary. He hasn't sent an angel. He hasn't even sent a host of angels. Those aren't people who are going to bring about the kingdom. God has sent himself. And Jesus, the king, is in their presence. Where is your faith? That's a question Jesus asks. It's not just driving at the quality of their faith. It's not just a question for us this morning about the quality of our faith. It's especially a question about the object of their faith. Where is your faith? Where is your faith looking? What is your faith in? Is it in me, Jesus, the miracle worker? Because it should be in me, Jesus. Yahweh, the Lord God incarnate. Jesus wants to know, is your faith in Him? 
Because he's still with us. He's never left us. Just like the disciples in that boat. They're freaking out. And Jesus has been there the entire time. He's asking them, in essence, don't you realize if you trust in me, you're trusting in Yahweh the Lord? That's the object of your faith. The one who controls all the cosmos. Who stirs up the seas and who calms them. He can handle your bank account. He can handle the disobedient child. He can handle every trial and storm in your life. No matter how great, no matter how small. When we worry and fear, we're really asking, who do we trust? When our faith fails or falters, it's evidence that that we've got divided hearts. That we've got divided trust. We might trust Jesus for some things. He's a really cool miracle worker after all. But our anxiety reveals we don't trust Jesus with all things. And when your life is rocked by troubles, by the tempests of life, Luke 8 shows us the Lord Jesus Christ is the only secure and safe shelter from the storm. Psalm 107.28 And then they cried to the Lord, to Yahweh the Lord, to Jesus Christ the Lord in their trouble. And He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Lord, we ask that you would fortify our faith this morning. Lord, we bow our heads and our hearts before you. We come in the name of Jesus. We come because of Jesus, because he is your son in whom you are well pleased. And in his name, we ask that you would do exactly as you promised to do in your word. That you would fortify our souls that your spirit would strengthen us in our inner being so that Christ would dwell more securely in our hearts through faith. Lord, I pray for those who just struggle consistently with anxiety and fear. Lord, would you cast out unbelief? Would you grant them greater knowledge through the revelation of your word and your son that they might trust you? that they might believe in You. Lord, that they would rest secure. Lord, we want to be able to sleep in the boat in the midst of trials. Because You reign and because Jesus, our High Priest, is seated at Your right hand. Lord God, empower that kind of belief in the midst of Your people this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus.